Please be seated. Renee and I spent a few days with her parents up in northern Indiana as they were preparing to uh, move to a new home. And we were still in their old home. And one of the wonderful features about that home that I've always liked is that it had a full finished basement. It was also a place during the summer that was very, very cool. And I enjoyed that very much. And so one night, I decided to sleep in the basement. And so at bedtime, I went downstairs and and I was secluded off to myself and turned out the lights. And all of a sudden, I was reminded how dark darkness really is because I could not see the hand right in front of my face. Have you ever experienced that? I wasn't scared of the dark, though when I was a boy, I was scared of the dark, and I would stay up at night thinking that I saw things uh, in the darkness. But that was not the situation here. It was just pitch black dark. Well, we experience that, don't we, every day that we live in our culture. You know, our day is not unlike Daniel's day. Daniel lived in a spiritually dark, fallen world beset with conflict, and that is our world today. We awoke this morning to the terrible news of that mass murder that took place in Orlando, Florida, an expression of a dark world beset with enmity and conflict. The primary lesson that we find here in the 11th chapter of Daniel, it really is a question that I would pose for us today. It's simply this. As followers of Jesus Christ, are we committed to side with the light as we are surrounded with so much darkness in this world? I've been greatly helped and encouraged by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on the book of Daniel and my preparation for this message, I depended greatly on Dr. Ferguson. And one of the things that Sinclair uh, notes in his commentary is the statement that one scholar made about the 11th chapter of Daniel. And the scholar basically said he did not see how anyone could base a sermon or sermons on it. And I thought, oh my goodness, (laughs) I think I've got a tiger by the tail today. It just reads like a history book, uh, doesn't it? But we will tackle this chapter today because I think there's a very important message for you and me with regards to how we should live as children of the light in a world that is beset with darkness and conflict. And that really is our theme today. And the way that I'm going to go about tackling this chapter is, and you'll, you'll find this on the sermon outline there in your bulletin, we will first uh, summarize the historical 
uh, data that we find in chapter 11. Yes, I'll be preaching the entire chapter today, but fear not, beloved. And then the second thing that we will do is to consider the prophetical or theological message of Daniel chapter 11. So the theme, walking in the light in a world filled with much darkness. Let's pray. Father, as we come before this text today, that certainly has has caused me to tremble a bit as I stand to preach it. Oh Lord, enable us to hear the, the very significant messages that you have for us, at least four, and that we would not be consumed with the details of this chapter, but, but see it in a big picture framework and to see the lessons that you would have for us today, that we might live with fidelity as children of the light in this world filled with much darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we want to look at then is this, this historical data, just in summary fashion. I am not going to read the entire chapter. Do we hear an amen? You read, I always hate to, 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 to say that as a preacher, we're not going to read the entire chapter, but it would take way too much time. I would encourage you to read it on your own. So what I will do is just to work through this chapter, and I'm going to point out certain verses as we progress uh, through this chapter uh, today. And I want to look at the the, the historical data. We really see three historical periods given in Daniel chapter 11, and, and we've already looked at these at some length as we have progressed through the book of Daniel these many weeks. The first period we find in verses 3 through 4, and it's the period of the Persian and Greek empires. We focused on these both in chapter 2 as we looked at that great statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then also in chapter 8. And in verses 3 and and the first part of verse 4, we read, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the the four winds of heaven. Maybe I should give a pop quiz to see if you can identify who the subject is of verses uh, 3 and 4, who this mighty king is, but I won't do that. I love you too much. And so we'll look at verse 3. The mighty king, of course, is Alexander the Great. He conquered the Persian Empire, and he, with great speed and quickness, conquered what has been described as the known world in his day. He greatly established it. It was an expansive kingdom in geography, and one historian notes that he, he exclaimed that he was bored because he had no more kingdoms to conquer. So that's how great Alexander the Great was. And as we saw in chapter 8, as we also see once again in chapter 11 and verse 4, remember in chapter 8, Alexander the Great is that goat that swiftly comes with that big horn between his eyes, or the horn was broken. In other words, Alexander the Great fell. 
and died. And his kingdom, that great kingdom that he had established, was subdivided in the four lesser kingdoms, each ruled by one of his generals. So that's the first period that is given here in chapter 11 to remind us of this, this superhero emperor who rose quickly, became great, and fell, and his kingdom was subdivided. The second period, verses 5 through 35, which is the bulk of chapter 11, really focuses on the four kingdoms that came out of Alexander's empire and the feuding and competition and the warfare that existed between these kings and kingdoms down through the generations each trying to gain more power than the other. And in particular, we find that, that two kingdoms are singled out. The, the southern kingdom, which is the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt, and the northern kingdom, which is the, the Seleucid Empire in Syria. These become the, 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 the focal point of Daniel chapter 11, 5 through 35. And what's interesting about this passage is that the same phrase that, that we have found in other places of Daniel, we find here once again the glorious land. We saw this in Daniel chapter 8, the glorious land being Palestine and Judah. And as, we, and as you would read through verses 5 through 35, you, you would see that the story begins to be told from the vantage point of the glorious land, Judah. And there are several reasons for this. That One is geographical. That if you look at Egypt in the south and Syria in the north, by land, Judah is right in the middle. And so we see if the Seleucid king wanted to come down and conquer the... Ptolemaic king, he would have to come right through what we know as the promised land. And so it was strategic in that sense. But I think the greater reason is theological and prophetical because Daniel chapter 11 is not just some dry history that is given so that we can impress our friends and neighbors. It is about God's work and his people. There is a theological and prophetical import to Daniel chapter 11. The historical data is important. It's part of God's Word. and We shouldn't be fearful to read it. But there's something even more significant about why this historical data is given to us. And so we read in verses 15 through 16, Then the king of the north shall come. And throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the, of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So here's the question. Who is this king of the north? We've been introduced to him before, and we see him noted in verse 15. He is the one who stands in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. It's none other than Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We studied him 
way back in Daniel chapter 8. He was one of the rulers in a succession of rulers of the Seleucid Empire, and he came to power about 174 or so B.C. He's the little horn that we read about in Daniel uh, chapter 8. And his agenda was to force the Hellenistic culture everywhere, and in particular on the Jewish people and Judah. And so after an unsuccessful campaign in Egypt, as he was warring against the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt, Antiochus was repelled and he returned and set his sights on the glorious land once again. And so if you look at verse 31, we read this, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, that is the temple in Jerusalem, and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. We study this in much further detail as we looked at chapter 8 and the history of Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. And there we said, and we'll say it again today, that he does represent the spirit of the Antichrist. In First John chapter 2, we're told that there will be a final Antichrist, a final eschatological figure. But throughout human history, there will be many Antichrists. Those who are in the spirit of the final Antichrist, and surely Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes fits that bill. The third and last period that we find noted in chapter 11 is one that has been somewhat controversial. Verses 36 through 45, this difficult passage is understood differently depending on your perspective. But one, one aspect of this passage where scholars seem to, to agree in a general sense is that from 36 to the end of the chapter, it's no longer talking about Antiochus the, the fourth Epiphanes. And so that brings us to this question. Who then is the subject of this last period of human history that is noted here in chapter 11? And I, uh, we, we find something uh, written about this individual in verses 37 and 38 where we read, He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortress instead of these. This individual obviously has a warlike mentality. He's power-hungry. He's all about himself and exalting himself. We see other characteristics of this subject there listed in these last verses there in, in chapter 11. And I tend to side with, with scholars like Sinclair Ferguson who would see this as, a, as the history of the final Antichrist at the end of the age. And so what we have is... More, re, you know, even though it's it's future to Daniel, but but the Persian and Greek empire that that is more immediate to Daniel, and then then future further down the line with the warring between the north and the south, 
And then finally, even stretching to the very end of the age, this conflict that exists, this final conflict in verses 41 through 45 between the king of the north identified as Antichrist and the south. And so we read then in this portion of of Scripture that the king of the north will conquer the king of the south and he will set himself up in the glorious land, verse 41. But this chapter concludes in a very powerful and hopeful way for God's people. In verse 45, we read of Antichrist, he shall come to his end. You may remember from chapter 7, there toward the end, we said that chapter was giving us a picture of the final day when Christ comes victoriously to conquer that ancient foe and we share in the victory of Christ. And so this is the history that we find in in chapter 11. It's a remarkable history. Daniel was living in the 6th century and yet he was given information about a very detailed history about things that will unfold well into the future, into the 6th century, and from my perspective, my understanding, even beyond to the final conflict at the end of the age. But there's more to this, to chapter 11, than just simply having our historical facts correct. They're important. But there is a theological and there is a prophetical message that we have here. And sometimes we can be tempted to spend too much time trying to detail all the historical facts and miss the primary message. And that's why I have simply chosen just to summarize these facts for us. Because I think the message is there's something more here for you and me today that will help us as we navigate life as children of light in a world filled with darkness. And so I want to ask this question. What are, what, what are these prophetical or theological messages that we might glean from Daniel chapter 11? And I have four of them. And here's the first one. And this is the second point in your sermon outline. And the first one is this. The state of conflict. The state of conflict. The hostility that exists in our world today and has always existed in the world since Genesis chapter 3 and will exist in the world until Jesus comes again is a, is a constant state of affairs. The struggles may ebb and flow, greater wickedness, less wickedness from our perspective, but nonetheless it is there. There are many expressions of this conflict that we, we suffer each and every day. I mentioned one even this morning we heard about. But ultimately, as we saw in, in Daniel chapter 10, all of the many expressions of this conflict today, this, this warring today, are out of the great cosmic conflict that we focused on for much of Daniel. That in chapter 10 we saw it as the cosmic conflict between Satan and Christ. 
And in the book of Daniel, we've described it in terms of the conflict between Babylon, the city of man, and Jerusalem, the city of God. It really is a conflict between light and darkness, isn't it? And this will take place until that final conflict that I believe we see at the end of Daniel chapter 11 when Antichrist comes and is finally defeated. Chapter 11 points us to the constant state of conflict in the world in which we live. And then secondly, chapter 11 shows us the instability of worldly kingdoms. And we, we have already considered this. Remember way back in chapter 2 of Daniel when we were looking at Nebuchadnezzar's dream in that statue that those four kingdoms represented there, they would rise and they would fall, they would rise and they would fall, and ultimately that little stone destroyed the entire statue, showing us of the instability of the city of man, worldly uh, kingdoms. The Persian Empire fell. Alexander the Great, the, the superhero of emperors, didn't turn out to be so great. He fell. And then as we work through, we find Antiochus came to an end. The Maccabeans came and defeated him and restored the temple and the people of God. And those precious words at the end of Daniel chapter 11, I believe, points to the defeat of the Antichrist. He will come to an end. Dr. Ferguson writes this, the kingdom that has no ultimate foundation is bound to crumble since it is populated by sinners devoted to their own ways. It contains, contains the seed of its own destruction. And I love this that Ferguson says, evil will eventually destroy itself. Daniel chapter 11 shows us of the instability of the world's kingdoms and that evil will ultimately destroy itself. Darkness will ultimately be consumed by itself. But there's a third message that we have here, the supremacy of God's sovereignty, the supremacy of God's sovereignty. Remember back in chapter 11, we had these, this, this great picture of the throne room of God. And it starts out, Daniel saying, as I look, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat, pointing to the absolute control and sovereignty God has sitting upon his throne in heaven with this world being in such utter chaos, yet he's totally in control. God is sovereign. One commentator said that Man plans, but God disposes. God will bring about his purposes. He will bring about that which is necessary to save his people. You may remember from last week, uh, Dale's uh, sermon, All Things. Well, truly, all things do work for good for God's people because God is sovereign. Tribulation, battling with the darkness is part of that all things. 
God is working for the good of his beloved. And fourth, and lastly, the fidelity of our walk. The fidelity of our walk. We, we find uh, a troubling notation in our text today. Look with, with me at the first part of verse 30 and the last part of verse 32. He, Antiochus, shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He, Antiochus, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Scholars believe that that Antiochus actually was able to garnish some support from some of the Jews who compromised and align themselves with him. And that's why he was able to make such an inroad into the Jewish culture there in, in Jerusalem. Again, I want to quote from Dr. Ferguson. He says, Evil cannot gain a foothold in the city of God unless it finds a spirit of cooperation among the visible people of God. It is not inevitable that the church should be corrupted by the world. There must be a willingness or a blindness in the church before that happens. There must be a willingness or a blindness in the church before Satan can have a foothold in the church. There must be a willingness and blindness in your heart and my heart before Satan can have a foothold in my heart. It is not true the devil made me do it. I do it. And because of compromise, I allow Satan to gain influence in my life. And the same is true for you. Listen to Ephesians 5, 6 through 11. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Do not become partners with them. Do not become partners with the dark side, Paul says. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are in light in the Lord. Don't become partners with darkness because that's not who you are. You're children of light. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead... Expose them. Well, let me ask this question. How might we become partners with darkness? And there's an infinite number of answers to that question. But I would just simply like to give you just three, three suggestions of how we might answer that question. And one is we may compromise, compromise biblical orthodoxy or um, not hold to truth. You know, there's this debate about is about the historicity of Adam, for example. And I believe this can be a really difficult thing for the church 
if people begin to embrace the fact that it's not important that Adam actually lived because that doctrine, the historicity of Adam is so central, I believe, to orthodoxy. If Adam is not historic, then can we really depend upon the Bible? If Adam is not historic, did he really actually sin? And in a sense, it's a big problem in my life today. See, that can be a real difficult issue. Compromising biblical truth is one way we side with the dark side. Secondly, compromising living out a, a, a robust biblical morality in the public square is another way that we can side with the dark side. And we have multiple examples of that today. I'll just simply mention them. Should Christians embrace same-sex marriage? Should Christians embrace abortion on demand? I mean, these are, these are biblical, moral issues. And as Christians venture over in, into this, they're venturing over into the dark side and partnering with those who would oppose God's truth. And then lastly, compromising living as a disciple of Christ by personal sin. This gets us all. <laughs> what about our own hearts? We may be so upset about this person and that person that says this or says that and represents something that we don't agree with. And we can say, oh, they're compromising, they're they're." you know, living on the dark side and all this kind of stuff, and we totally ignore the darkness that is in our own heart. If we really want to make a difference in this culture, I am convinced it is not not going to extort because they allow blankety-blanks in blankety-blank. You fill in the blank. If we really want to make a difference, we do need to be careful with the truth. But more than anything else, what you and what, what I need to do is to say, Jesus, deal with my own heart and root out the darkness there and bring me to repentance. Who among us can say, I never toy with the dark side? Who among us is guilt-free when it comes to have we ventured over and partnered with those in darkness? We all have. We've all sinned in that very way. But I want to suggest this. That's important that we seek not to do that, but what is also equally important is that we not stay in the darkness. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10, through 10, the first part was our call to worship this morning that talked about God being light, there's no darkness in Him. And the last part was a uh, confession of, of sin that begins in verse 8 uh, that, that speaks about if we say we have no sin, we, we deceive ourselves. And the middle part is this. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. In other words, if we say that we never walk in darkness, we deceive ourselves because we're prone to walk in darkness. And here John is calling us as children of the light to come and confess our partnering with the dark side and receive the forgiveness 
of Jesus Christ. And isn't that forgiveness wonderful? But I, want to, I don't want to leave us right there with as great as forgiveness is. I don't want to leave us right there. That all we need to do is live as we want to and just simply go to the Lord and be forgiven because I do not think that's the gospel. The gospel is we go to the Lord and we, we confess our darkness and we are forgiven and He gives us grace and we arise and we walk in His light. We obey Him. We pursue holiness in this culture. Listen to these, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're children of the light because Christ has shown his light in our hearts, his grace First Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. We are children of the light, and we're called to live as such in this culture. Then the passage that J.C. read earlier, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep. Then he goes, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. We are children of light. And I think chapter 11 calls us, exhorts us to live as we have been made, children of the light, and have nothing to do with darkness. Yes, we are forgiven when we have something to do with darkness, but we should get up every morning seeking by God's grace not to even consider partnering with, dark, with darkness, but to pursue Him. Thankfully, when I was down in that very, very dark basement, a flashlight had been provided for me. In the darkness, I was able to find the flashlight. Isn't that cool? And I embraced it, and I turned it on, and I was able to perfectly navigate the darkness. That dark basement pales in comparison to the darkness that is this world. And yet the good news is this. The light has come to deal with the darkness Jesus is that light. He has come to illuminate the darkness, to push it back. He has come to illuminate the darkness, to expose it, and to reveal it. He has shown his healing, gracious, merciful, saving light in our hearts. And he has made us his children. And one day he will come and finally overcome the dark. As we consider these, this is, these historical facts, we should con be convinced that conflict is a constant state 
in this world. We should be convinced that the worldly kingdoms are unstable and they will all come to an end. We should be convinced that God is sovereign and he will bring about his purposes and his kingdom is forever. And we should be convinced that because of how great God is, how loving God is, how precious is the light in which we now live, that we should have and should pursue fidelity in walking as children of light for the glory of God and for the benefit of his church. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you are light, and in you there is no darkness. And Father, you love us, even while in us there is darkness, but you've dealt with it. And so, Father, as we come repentantly before you, we also come asking you to empower us that we might live, we might walk as we are, children of the light. Cause us to trust Jesus, the light, and to obey by following after the light as his disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.